0: Welcome back to Conversations for the Good. Good morning, Dr. Jane. Good morning, Anna. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm just fine. It's great
1: to be together.
0: Yes, it is, Dr. Jane. You know, we talked about family and relationships in one of our earliest conversations. Our discussion was specific to dealing with the difficult demands of the pandemic. And I was wondering if we could turn toward the quality of the relationships and how we are faring in difficult times and out of difficult times.
1: Well, sure, Anna. You know, life is teeming with relationships. You know, in a very general sense, everything is a relationship. You know, our connection to people, places, things, our connections uh, can be in the form of preferences, likes, dislikes. You know, all are based on direct experience, and also, you know, the the conditioning that we've talked about, the beliefs, the backstory, our interpersonal connections, though, and interpersonal relationships, you know, are specific to connections with people, and this is a an innate need. Our our need for human connection is just—it's really part of our hardwiring. So it starts to develop actually in utero, um, and our ability to make connections with other people, interpersonal connections, begins in the first four years of life. Very often this is referred to as the holding environment. And this is a a period of a time when we're really engaging with our caregivers early on. And as I say, first four years of life. So these are the people that provided food, warmth, uh, stimulation, protection, Uh, social contact, and all these are conditioned patterns. All these things that happen to us and how they happen to us in those first four years of life are really etched in our neural system. And much of it is pre-verbal. So this means that we really don't have necessarily images or memories or concepts that help us understand what happened during those first four years.
0: So what you're saying is that we're wired for relationships, and our first four years starts the process of how we connect with others. And some of our experiences is in our wiring, yet we may not be able to put a memory or a reason with it. So
1: well, that, That's right, Anna. That's exactly yeah. right.
0: So some of the things we say, do, or want may be a complete mystery to us.
1: Well, yes, yes. and And our sense of of who we are in connection with others, you know, is being formed in those years. So the family system that we oriented in, um, regardless of what it was comprised of, I mean, sometimes it's biological relations, uh, but not necessarily, you know, this really sets the stage for um, our ongoing conditioning. Um, and, And, also our ongoing development so the system provided things like um, beliefs values you know and provided these through instructions and also modeling so we were having and this is part of our backstory you know beliefs and values which are those collection of guiding principles that eventually dictate how we see ourselves and how we see the world and how this gets expressed through our actions and we either experience firsthand what it felt like to be safe and protected and comfortable and connected in those early years or not. And this data, as I say, is stored
0: in the neural system. So it's all there. It's all been downloaded. So the, ground, so the groundwork is laid early in life, which is great if you happen to be born in a healthy family system. But if that's not the case, your foundation is in trouble. Uh, Can we talk more about how that plays out? Sure. You know, and I want to say, first of all, you know,
1: it's not always doom and gloom. You know, there's a level of dysfunction, even in relatively healthy families. Uh, And in unhealthy households, the dysfunction can run from, you know, mild to severe, you know, kind of on a continuum. Uh, And we often find ways to compensate for the family deficits, you know, like turning to others outside of the family. Uh, it might've been uh, that we were maybe inadvertently um, not even realizing that we were looking for other ways to, to operate in the world, but kind of stumble on it by having experiences with other people. And they offer maybe different modes of, of behavior or different guidance as to how to live life And these could be people who were in our extended family, you know, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, or they could be neighbors, school teachers, school chums. Um, And what they provide is really an alternative to what we've been learning at home. So
0: there's no need to lose all hope, right?
1: (laughs) Well, no. And, and, And in fact, most of us are aware of our family's dysfunction, at least in part, and very often speak of it openly, you know, the hitch is that it's often um, so much more obvious to see dysfunction in others or to kind of project the blame onto others. And what we have then are blind spots to our own deficits or how our backstory is contributing to our intentions or our motivations. And and as I say, you know, it's, it's learned early on it's really that early conditioning and some of it is not available to us. I mean, we really might not understand the early program, but it's there in our neural makeup. So we may disagree with certain modes of behavior in the family um, and we've all said to ourselves and to others, you know, I'll never do that. And yet, isn't it interesting how so often we wind up reenacting the family dynamics, you know, in our social emotional relationships, um, in our work environment, and remain oblivious to how we're contributing to these these relationship issues and and also the failures that we may be experiencing in relationships. So it's not enough to say, I'll never do that. We have to discover really, you know, what are the clues? Find the the clues as to what we're doing. and, And also look at what we will do instead of the behavior that was modeled you know this requires insight insight into ourselves and then acting on that insight in order to make the changes necessary you know insight is a beautiful thing but it doesn't mean diddly unless we use it and here again we're talking about conscious choice
0: yes it sounds like another path that requires self discovery you know, we've been here before in all our conversations, it seems like. Well, that's right,
1: Anna. You know, um, it's about turning toward the issues, turning toward the discomfort. And it's easy to either, um, I should say it's easier often, to either ignore the relationship issues or project the problems onto others. You know, we all do it. Um, or we may opt to accommodate or enable Deficits, both ours and and those of others. So this also paves the path to unhealthy interpersonal connections. So this can be avoided. You know, we've talked a lot about the ongoing practice of self awareness, and and this is really where we need to land once again. You know, self awareness directed toward knowing ourselves, admitting our shortcomings, and making committed conscious choice to really change the undesirable behavior, but it requires the awareness. that's the foundation. And I found that uh, that really healthy relationships are grounded in two primary relationships. Um, both need to be solid and and in order. And first is the the relationship to ourselves, knowing ourselves. This can also include acknowledging that there's a part of myself that's a best or higher part. And the second relationship is a relationship. To a power, power greater than ourselves, you know, however we choose to define that. And these need to be solid and anchored because this lays the groundwork, the very foundation for relationships that really offer safety and security, support and comfort.
0: And Dr. Jane, can you provide a little more insight about what these two relationships hold for us? Well,
1: sure. You know, our relationship with self is really the only route to challenging the conditioning you know that we learned in our families and our early experiences you know using awareness we are able to own our thoughts and our feelings our behaviors and discern between healthy needs and and really kind of unhealthy neediness you know we need connection with our best and higher self in order to do the next right thing so being able to acknowledge that i have that capacity is really essential And a power greater than ourselves can sometimes be, for some people, that higher part of themselves. You know, that's perfectly okay. For other people, there tends to be more of a spiritual connection in life that guides them and empowers them to live a life committed to um, a code of honor and integrity, which also is a guide to that next right thing. You know, each of us must discover for ourselves what this is, what this is for me. And then trust it and follow it.
0: Well, can you explain a little bit more about the needs and neediness? Sure,
1: Anna. You know, needs are normal, healthy, valid Um parts of who we are. There was a fellow back in, um, he started his writing his theories in the 40s, published a book in 1954, Abram Maslow, who talked about a hierarchy of needs, talked about how in our development as humans, our psychological development, really required that we have certain physiological needs met first, biological needs and safety needs, before we can really develop needs that allow us to have healthy attachments and healthy connections with people and also self-esteem and eventually maximize our potential as humans. And so this is about that, that environment that is offered to us early in life and whether or not the environment offered security and caring and support. And, and our awareness of our needs and the healthy part of our needs really allows us to survive and thrive, as we've talked about before, uh, by taking responsible action. So life is kept on an even keel because we're able to access our own creative power and our own resourcefulness to recognize these needs and meet these needs. So that's very healthy. There's another component though that can be unhealthy and that is our neediness. And very often, this is where we're operating out of deficits or a position of desperation or helplessness, that kind of self-belief that I can't do it or that's other people get to do that, but I can't. And it's always looking for external solutions to um, really solve the problem. So this really develops what we call a victim mentality. It becomes part of our personal view. So this forms what we can refer to as attachments, really unhealthy attachments, which are how we hold other people, uh, situations, uh, things responsible for feeling fulfilled, feeling safe, feeling secure. It's like, I can't do it myself. I have to have other people do it for me. And these attachment patterns, again, they start in those first four years of life and evolve over a lifetime through our teenage years and our adulthood. And they can cause a great deal of psychological imbalance and, and ambivalence. So we might wind up having a, a fear of, of, of um, inadequacy and, and be in constant conflict about not being okay. So it really becomes the kind of the foundation for how we live life, how we view ourselves, how we view the world, you know. And, and when we're trying to allay these these fears that come out of the neediness, it's always sought outside ourselves. So the comfort is sought through sometimes unhealthy attachments, whether the attachments be to our families, relationships, friendships, romantic relationships. Uh, We expect other people to take away the discomfort, sometimes regardless of what anyone else needs or wants. I mean, it really becomes paramount. And then there's the other end of the spectrum uh, that might indicate the fear of any kind of attachment. So this is more, uh, it appears more as avoidant behavior, you know, not wanting to get too close, kind of pushing people away from us And, and maintaining emotional distance and a lot of ambivalence about how close can we get to others. And so social withdrawal and isolation very often is the path of comfort. It feels better to be at a distance from others.
0: And that sounds like it could get very lonely. Well, yes, and
1: unfortunately, it's perpetuated by the multiple ways that we compensate for our feelings of inadequacy, like sometimes it's, we become over-controlling or people-pleasing or certainly codependent tendencies come out of this kind of uh, unhealthy attachments, a fear of intimacy, and as I mentioned, you know, the avoidant behavior. You know, even the psychological aspects of addictions uh, can't be grounded in this sense of um, having our feelings um, and experiences of emptiness not being addressed or or being addressed only through, you know, trying to get what we need from others or other things. You know, and particularly in in addictions, this is often experienced as this almost insatiable hunger to fill the the sense of emptiness and and the feelings of not being enough with food, alcohol, drugs, other relationships, video games, gambling, uh, goes on and on. The list just goes on and on, looking outside of ourselves.
0: So if we don't see how we're contributing to our own unhappiness, it continues to be part of our lives and discontentment.
1: Well, that's right. And another dimension. Um, as I just mentioned, is is having this underdeveloped sense of emotional intimacy. You know this capacity for emotional intimacy really begins again in those first four years of life. And it's really starts with intimacy with ourselves, knowing ourselves. it's It's about being able to have a sense of who I am. And it's in those first four years of life, the developmental piece is that I was seen and I was heard. And this fosters, feelings of safety and security. So if, if as we develop, we're solely seeking to have our esteem needs met from others, we really never explore who we are. We really can't really cultivate this emotional intimacy with ourselves. We don't know what we really want. We don't know what we really need. Um, and we don't understand that finding this and operating from it is an inside job. So, the result is a life of ongoing desperation to find somebody or something to help us feel whole.
0: Well, Dr. Jane, let's talk about healthy relationships. What are the key elements?
1: Well, there are many, Anna. There's quite a laundry list. yeah I mean, first we we really need to to cultivate trust, that that confidence that someone has our back, whether it's a best friend or it's our partner. And then there's also that loyalty of uh, being faithful, being good as our word, always considering others in our decision making and in our commitments. You know that we really follow through. Um, Respect is also important. Listening, being open to others' perspectives, and and um, this is a it's a tough one, especially when those differ from ours. To really respect other people's opinions and their choices. And also patience is a key element. You know, we're all works in progress. And so we make mistakes. The key is let's make new mistakes. Communication is also an important piece. It needs to be two-way. So active listening has to be part of it. And sometimes it's important that we allow ourselves to really listen and not respond. Sometimes when someone else is talking, we're already formulating what we're going to say. And active listening is really allowing myself to take in what the other person says. Also, honesty is a is a key to healthy relationships. But I always like to think of being able to tell the truth with compassion, because truth without compassion has sharp edges and can really be hurtful and, and harmful. And in healthy relationships, we also have shared interests. You know, there's usually some common ground, and yet we also have to have boundaries, you know, and these are defined um, uh, by who we are and who we're not, and we have to be clear on those. So it might include my physical space or my body or my opinions. Uh, It's important that I know what my boundaries are so that I can be clear in communicating them. And then there are two more that I think are really important that we very often don't think about as being key elements in relationships. One is self-discipline. I need to be responsible for my own mind, body, wholeness, and health. And if I'm not taking care of myself, it's going to affect the other people that I know and love. And the other piece is self-improvement. We always need to be looking to how we can, how we can be our best selves. You know we are meant to evolve, and it's so important that we're actively involved in that evolution.
0: Dr. Dean, what about conflicts in relationships? This has been a year of conflicts, just escalating conflicts.
1: <laughs> well, truly, you know, and, and a brief but broad brushstroke is that. Um, The the pandemic has been, as we've explored before in earlier conversations, the perfect storm for fear and anxiety, which sets us up to be in survival and not necessarily at our best. You know, we've had the lockdowns and the sheltering and um, increased together time for some and also forced separation for others. So all have contributed to difficulty in coping and also increased conflict. Uh, Traditionally, Breakups, it's, and I find this so interesting. Usually, happen in relationships after people have spent an extended time together. It's like there's like too much togetherness can sometimes push toward that choice of you know we need to we need to split. We can't do this anymore. Um, the fact that we've been spending more time together doesn't necessarily mean that it's been quality time. And certainly this has played out in the pandemic. So it hasn't necessarily been quality time, um, household chat tasks, childcare tasks, haven't necessarily been equally distributed. And people, even though they've been spending more time together, haven't necessarily felt seen or heard through the pandemic. So, I mean, this really kind of highlights that relationships inside and outside, you know, the family system have really taken a hit uh, because of the social distancing. And also sometimes because of the really strong differences and opinions regarding safety issues, how things need to be played out for safety.
0: What are some things to keep in mind regarding our relationships as we move through these difficult times?
1: Well, exploring ourselves is paramount. I mean, we really need to know what's going on from the inside out. We can't change others. But we can change ourselves and healthy relationships require effort and commitment. They don't just happen. And it begins with, that's exploring ourselves, begins as an inside job. So it's important that we discover, you know, what makes us tick and who we are, what we need, what we want, uh, and to be curious how this plays out in our relationships through how we communicate and the actions that we take. You know, it's also important to avoid judgment and criticism, particularly um, of others' behavior, especially when we're trying to negotiate for some kind of a change. And uh, when we stick to the behavior, you know, it really can salvage that I love you or I appreciate you as a person and the behavior, you know, is something that I want to focus on and it can be enormously helpful. Using I statements rather than you, you is always pointing the finger. And so, really, kind of coming back and taking responsibility to convey what I need clearly, own my own reactivity. And when things start to escalate, you know, it's time to take a time out. You know, we've talked about that in the past, you know, this the chill time Um, and using active listening. Sometimes it's really important that when someone is telling me something that rather than trying to respond immediately, I reflect back what I just heard so that we can be really very clear before we respond. The other piece is mind reading, avoid it at all costs. You know, it doesn't matter how long we've lived with someone. It's important not to assume, you know, always check out for accuracy, and work for win-win solutions. That can be so incredibly important. How can we both feel good as we find a solution? And above all, it really is living with gratitude and compassion in our relationships. That thankfulness goes a long way. And as we've talked about, it really has such an incredible impact on our body-mind experience. It really does.
0: Well, and I'm so grateful for you and these conversations, Dr. Jane. There's so much to think about here. So uh, this all hits so close to home for, I think, many of us. As always, so much great advice. Thank you, Dr. Jane.
1: Thank you, Anna.
0: Until our next conversation.